0: welcome to the fundamental health podcast i'm your host dr paul saladino this podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness in this podcast i will share with you everything i have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible thanks for joining me on this journey What is up, you guys? Welcome to another amazing week. It is so nice to be moving into summer. I hope you are all enjoying some warmer weather and getting out in the sun. I do believe that the coronavirus pandemic is nearly behind us. And what is so interesting to me is that Many of the things which were controversial to suggest weeks ago that the lockdown may not have been as effective as we believed, that social distancing could have negative effects on humans by removing them from vitamin D in the sunlight, and that insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome are, are at the center of this crisis— Are not so controversial to suggest anymore. And countries like Sweden are looking pretty good. Um, I'll talk about that in future podcasts, not so much this one. But uh, thankfully, I believe the viral uh, pandemic is in decline right now. So I am just so grateful to be able to share this information and share my thoughts. I won't always be right, but I will always try to share honestly what I believe um, to be the most honest and authentic representation of how I see the data. But at this point, I would say humbly that um, I think we are learning this virus is not going to wipe out the planet. It's not as deadly as we believed it to once be. And that the major risk factors are clearly reversible, as I will talk about in this episode with my buddy, Asim Malhotra. Before we jump in, please check out my book, The Carnivore Code, on Amazon, thecarnivorecodebook.com. All of my controversial thoughts are there. You will find it all there. It's all about carnivore diets. If you want to reverse insulin resistance... A carnivore or carnivore-ish diet, in my opinion, is absolutely the best way to do it because you will get nose to tail organ meats, you will get nutrients, and you will not get plant toxins. Check out my stuff, thecarnivorecodebook.com. If you like this podcast, please, please, please leave me a review on iTunes. It's how we get it to more people. Thank you so much for that. And if you like my book, please leave me a review on Amazon as well. Um, there are too many trolls in the world and more people need to hear about the book. It's got over 400 reviews. It's crushing it. It's a five-star book on Amazon. I'm super stoked about it. It's a bestseller, and as many of you will know, it's going to be republished. It's always going to be for sale, but it will be republished by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, a Big Five publisher in New York, come August. It will see much broader distribution, and we will reach tons of people, so that is super exciting news. My guest this week is Asim Malhotra. As you'll hear, he is a cardiologist in Britain, in the UK, and he is an interventional cardiologist. Like a previous guest I've had, Nadir Ali. He is one of these guys that puts stents in people's arteries. And as you'll hear at the beginning of the podcast, had a realization one day when he was talking to a patient about a recent stent that had been put in and the patient was served a hamburger with a bun and French fries. And wait for the podcast where you hear what the worst part of that meal is, according to Dr. Malhotra. It's not the burger. So he had a realization that we're not doing things right in medicine. We're ignoring food. It's this glaring elephant in the room, and we can't ignore food and its effect on metabolic health, as you'll hear in this interview with him. We get into tons of details about this. We really break it down, and we give lots of practical steps about how to reverse insulin resistance, how to tell if you are insulin resistant, and how much of the population is really insulin resistant, and why this is a really bad, bad thing. So you guys are going to dig this one. It's an amazing podcast. It is, as the kids say these days, fire fire. Do the kids say that these days? I don't know. When I was a kid, we used to say it was the bomb, but I don't think anybody says it's the bomb anymore. It's fire or whatever. It's Gucci. This is a Gucci podcast. Um, my sponsors are always fire Gucci and the bomb. Thank you for supporting all these people. Uh, I'm really loving my blue blocks glasses. You can check them out at blueblocks.com. This is B L U B L O X blue blocks. What's so cool about these, these are definitely my favorites. If you see me wearing them on any of my Instagram stories, they're the Jasper. I got these really cool kind of hipsterific glasses. They have clear glasses so that I can be out at a restaurant with friends or on a date or wherever I want to be and wearing these clear glasses and people don't think you look like Elton John. And they're blocking the vast majority of the wavelengths, which these guys have gone to great lengths to select against. So all the blue wavelengths, all the green wavelengths, if you look at their website, there's lots of science about getting rid of all the wavelengths to protect the circadian rhythms being driven by the circadian rhythm clock, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and the production of melatonin. So they're doing a great job. They're super science-based. These guys are awesome. I've talked to them about the science in person and over the phone, and I'm really impressed with what they're doing. And the glasses are really high quality, and they just look really cool. They've also gotten the Elton John glasses, which I've got both, and they're both the Jasper. If you want to look just like Carnivore MD, you can get the Jaspers in the super, uh, the super dark ones, which are um, for my friends who are hip with the orange lenses, or you can get the clear lenses, which I can wear anytime, and I just love them. So check out Blue Blocks. You can use the code Carnivore MD for 15% off your order, blueblocks.com my favorite sponsors of all time. I guess I shouldn't play favorites, but let's just be honest. White Oak is amazing. www.whiteoakpastures.com. These are the men and women of this sixth generation, 150 year family farm who are leading the way with regenerative agriculture. If you guys know me, you'll know there are two things I care about more than many other things. These are my real passions. They are regenerative agriculture and nose-to-tail eating. And regenerative agriculture is the type of farming that seeks to mimic the grazing of animals. They're 100% grass-fed, grass-finished on this farm. Um, At least the, the beef and the lamb are. And the pork is all grazed and wild grazing and fully pastured and they are putting back into the land the compost. They are rotating the grazing of these animals, and they are found to be carbon negative by life cycle analysis. We can sequester carbon into the ground by raising animals in this way. This is the future of agriculture in the U.S. If you've ever seen white oak pastures, it's a beautiful farm, and the dirt is so dark because it is full of organic matter, and that leads to healthy plants, which leads to healthy animals. Which leads to healthy humans <laughs> and a healthy environment in so many ways because it doesn't produce as many carbon dioxide emissions, and we allow those emissions to be sequestered into the soil along with water table or the water in general. There's less runoff. So check out whiteoakpastures.com. You can use the code CarnivoreMD for 10% off your first order. If this isn't the best meat you've ever had, um, then, uh, I will come to your house and cook you a steak. I wish I could, I can't actually do that, but it's amazing meat and it is super high quality. And I love these guys. Call Sarah. So call white Oak pastures. You'll hear, you'll hear Will Harris's voice. Will, Will Harris's voice. He's amazing. And then speak to someone and say, hi, Sarah, Paul sent me and asked me to call you and tell you that you're awesome. So call Sarah at white Oak pastures, tell Jenny, she's awesome. Tell Will Harris. He's awesome. They're amazing people at white Oak pastures. So what are the two things I love? Well, one of the, the some of the two things I love regenerative agriculture and nose to tail organ meats. And you all know this if you've listened to this podcast before. My friends, the men and women at Ancestral Supplements, ancestralsupplements.com are helping us all get so many more nose to tail organ meats in our diet. And this is crucial for optimal human health. It is really undeniable that our ancestors have always eaten organ meats. They've always treasured them. And we're just throwing them away these days. We're ignoring them. For many of us, it's hard to get spleen or pancreas or liver or brain or collagen or any of these foods because we're just not, we don't have access to them. We're not hunting animals, but ancestral is doing a great thing by encapsulating these into gels and capsules. So they'll do low-temperature dehydration. This is also known as desiccation. And then magically, there's all these little elves that take the desiccated organs and put them into capsules. That's a lie. There's machines that do it, but we can imagine it's the little nose-to-tail elves that do it. And then you have liver in a capsule. And the majority of the nutrients are preserved. The vitamins, the minerals, the peptides, the magic in there, I can... You know, say with a great amount of confidence that if you are not eating organ meats and you add these to your diet, whether in the form of fresh organ meats or gelatin capsules, you will feel better and know that this is working. Give it a try, check it out. Ancestral Supplements is an amazing company with really, really good people that I know personally and um, would go to war with. They are my uh, some of my closest friends and family, uh, not because of the business relationship, but because they are amazing humans. So, and they want. Uh, the same things that I want, which is really just to help us, our families, our children be more healthy. So check their stuff out. Uh, I've been really digging the collagen recently. As many of you will know, I cut my hand really badly and I've been taking the living collagen. Uh, I love it. Um, I'm on a huge spleen kick right now and I'm digging that. And thymus and spleen can be amazing for the immune system. It's always a good thing to think about how we are making our immune system strong. And these organs are critical. So check out spleen, check out thymus, check out collagen, check out all of it. They have so much good stuff. At AncestralSupplements.com, you can use the code SALADINOMD for 10% off your order on the Shopify site. They are putting back in what the modern world has left out. And I hope that um, with my move to Texas in the near future, I will be spending much more time with them And that I will see all of you in Texas in the near future. What? I'm moving to Texas? Yes, I am. Listen after the podcast for what is going on with me. I love you all. Enjoy this one with Asim Malhotra. It's going to blow your mind. All right. Three, two, one. We're live. Dr. Asim Malhotra, thanks for coming on the podcast, my friend. It's so good to connect with you.
1: Absolutely, Paul. Lovely. Pleasure.
0: And I say this every time that I have our mutual friend, Ivor Cummins on, but it's so good to have somebody on the podcast with an accent. It makes it so interesting for the audience. And I think everyone appreciates the accent. And so, this is a yeah, bonus yeah. podcast for all your listeners. You get to listen to a seems amazing accent. So, we're going to get into all sorts of stuff about obesity and metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance in relation to overall health and coronavirus. But for a lot of people in the States, they may not know who you are. And I'm so excited to share you and your background and all the stuff you've done with my audience. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into this, and what you do. You're a cardiologist in the UK, so tell us a little bit about you and how you got here.
1: Sure, Paul. So um, I qualified as a doctor in 2001, so it's been almost 20 years, uh, in Scotland at Edinburgh Medical School. And then I went down the path of pursuing a career in cardiology, and I initially subspecialized in interventional cardiology. So if people don't understand that, essentially it's keyhole heart surgery, stents, treating acute heart attacks. Um, and, uh, and has been used in, in select patients with stable coronary artery disease to open up blockages. So that's where I did my initial training. That's what I trained in. And then coming towards um, sort of the end of sort of 2008, 2009, 2010, I'd started to notice as a clinician working as a frontline doctor in the National Health Service, I was noticing more and more strain on the system. And more and more people coming in with obesity and more and more people coming in with diseases and conditions related to obesity, which all are risk factors, as you know, for heart disease. So in particular, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, an abnormal inflammatory cholesterol profile, you know, the increased waist circumference, all of those things I was noticing, more and more of that. And uh, at the same time, we're constantly hearing these headlines every few months, obesity this, obesity that, Uh, 2004 you know, the World Health Organization announced that obesity was a global, you know, uh, pandemic, if you like, and we need to do something about it. But nothing was happening. And uh, I tried to sort of, you know, what I think there was one epiphany moment for me, I've had several, but one of them was, um, I was, you know, it was was 2010, I think, and I was working uh, as a um, as a resident, I think is the, we call it specialist registrar. So I was training to, you know, be a fully fledged interventional cardiologist, but now doing procedures independently and, uh, middle of the night patient comes in. Uh, I was working a big cardiac center in London called Hairfield hospital in his fifties has a heart attack. We stented him quickly, you know, restored the blood supply, saved his life if you like. And, uh, the next morning I'm doing the ward round going around the wards and I come to this chap. And I think, you know, he had a bit of central obesity. He was a smoker. So I'm giving the usual, you know, the, my usual lecture, which I give to everybody, which is, you know, you know, take these medications religiously, but stopping smoking is probably the most important thing you can do to reduce the risk of having another heart attack. And, uh, and I said, you need to sort your diet out. You know, this, it's really important you follow a healthy diet. I can see that you've got some, you know, weight around your waist. And just as I'm having that conversation with him, he gets served a burger and fries by the hospital as part of his lunch and he looks at me and he says doctor how do you expect me to change my lifestyle if you're serving me pardon my language paul if you're serving me the same crap that brought me here in the first place so he got it and i just thought yeah i mean he it makes sense what what you know and i looked around the you know the, I, it just suddenly occurred to me the hospital food environment was was pretty crappy itself a lot of junk food a lot of ultra processed food um, I had started to read up on nutrition research and realized that it was very important. A lot of good stuff out there showing that you can very quickly reduce risk of heart attacks, et cetera, from, from dietary changes. So I just thought there was a huge mismatch here. So the next thing I did, and that's kind of where things started for me, is just in one of my lunch breaks. You know, I had a quick lunch break, and I'm sitting in the, in the doctor's office. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to throw an email to Jamie Oliver. So Jamie Oliver, as you probably know, is a very famous international chef, famous in the UK. And he had done a lot of work trying to tackle child obesity in particular and improve school food because school dinners, you know, in the UK were also full of lots of junk. And he wanted to improve school food. And, you know, he he wasn't able to succeed, but he raised awareness, you know, a lot of awareness about what he was doing. And I thought, you know, this is great. How about get him involved in a hospital food campaign to try and improve hospital food for staff and for patients? And to add to that, Paul, the other thing that I think a lot of people still get really startled by is that, and I'm sure it's somewhere in the US, 50% of our 1.4 million NHS employees are overweight or obese themselves. The statistics on nurses is about 62%. So it's clearly an issue of the food environment. Of course, dietary advice, potentially, yes, which we'll talk about. So um, I thought this would be a good thing to do. And, you know, to my surprise, six weeks later, I get a reply from his personal assistant saying, dear Racine, thank you for email. Jamie would be thrilled to meet you. Would you like to come and have dinner at his office and we can have a discussion with a few doctors? So I then go and meet Jamie, who actually is exactly the guy you see him on TV. He's a very sincere, um, really an amazing person, you know, really kind. uh, And, you know, he's a good listener and he was really interested and there's no arrogance. And he really, you know, wanted to do something about this. So we had dinner, uh, he cooked for all of us, which is kind of cool, <laughs> you know, several doctors. And, um, and then what happened was he said, listen, I support what you're doing, Asim, but at the moment I've got so many things going on. It'd be very difficult for me to also get involved in, a, in a, a campaign improving hospital food, but I can support you. I can give you a supportive quote if you're writing something about it. So then I wrote a, news, a newspaper article in the Observer newspaper, which is part of the Guardian group and very impactful in the UK. Um, again, just to give it some context, the Observer's impact was such that Winnie Mandela said the biggest influence on getting her husband, Nelson Mandela, out of prison was the Observer newspaper's campaign, right? So it's a very impactful, respected newspaper. By luck, they liked what I wrote. Um, and then they put it, again, to my surprise, as a front page commentary, um, 2000, and we're talking about 2011 now, I think, 2011, February, something like that. They put it as a front page commentary and, uh, and it was something like, the, the title was, I mend hearts, then I see our hospitals serve junk food to my patients. So it was a kind of big, you know, uh, awareness thing. And, um, and then things just took off from there, um, uh, Paul, to be honest, it's just, you know, it's about um, realizing that, you know, we as, as clinicians, as frontline clinicians, also, I believe, can have a very important role as being public health advocates as well. So it's not just looking after the patient that comes into the consultation room, and obviously the system, as you know, in the US and even here is geared towards that, but actually thinking about what can we do as clinicians to help those patients stop them coming in, but also making sure that they're empowered when they leave the consultation room, with everything going on outside, that they are gonna be healthier. And um, and I think that's kind of really what I'm about, and that applies not just to the whole issue about diet, but it applies to drugs, but, in my journey, that one of the things I discovered to simplify it is that you know a lot of the practice of medicine, a lot of the dietary advice has been unfortunately corrupted by commercial influence, by vested interests. It's corrupted the science. And then we as clinicians are often making clinical decisions on biased and commercially influenced um, information. And if we're doing that, just from a very basic concept, evidence-based med- medicine concept perspective, we are going to get bad outcomes or suboptimal outcomes for our patients. And that's exactly what we've got globally. So I am now kind of one of those people that just advocates for better science, but also in my own clinical practice see, sees what's, what works and, and try to you know, use examples of patients and, and giving patient preference and all that kind of stuff as, as part of how I communicate.
0: I love it. That's such a great story. Thank you for sharing that. And as we were talking about before we jumped on the podcast, you've been beating this drum for years. We're going to talk about all of this in the context of coronavirus. But if people go back and search Asim Malhotra on, uh, on, on YouTube, they will see that you've been talking about this insulin resistance idea and metabolic health for five or six years. This is not new stuff. And it's interesting that this viral pandemic is bringing it all to the forefront again, or at least we hope that it will bring it to the forefront because mainstream media outlets are not reporting on this issue, which is why I want to make it a focus of what we're talking about here and what I'm talking about. And I love that in that story. You're
1: absolutely right. And just very quickly on that metabolic issue, you're absolutely right. So 2013, so if we just focus on the heart disease issue, and you obviously know this very well, the dietary advice was influenced a lot by the obsession with reducing heart disease, saturated fat was wrongly demonized. And I wrote this piece in the BMJ in 2013 called Saturated Fat is Not the Major Issue. And that got a lot of attention because the BMJ press released it. And I was on, you know, I was suddenly on Fox News, Chicago, CNN International was the front page of three newspapers because suddenly a heart specialist, I think that was the interest really. A cardiologist is saying saturated fat isn't the issue. Cholesterol, we've over-exaggerated cholesterol. We've over-medicated millions of people on statins. But as you've said already, absolutely right, the major issue is metabolic syndrome. So two-thirds of people with heart attack have metabolic syndrome. And what I was highlighting in the piece, as well as saying we need to, uh, you know, really focus on sugar and refined carbs, is that this is actually the big issue that we need to be focusing on, and more effective than using drugs for single risk factors, there is a method, there is a way, through lifestyle changes, and if we did that, then I think we'd be in a better place.
0: And that same thing is exactly true with coronavirus. There are so many parallels here, and we'll get into all of this, but... I love that you said during the story that in 2004, obesity was declared a global pandemic. Like, I I think we've forgotten this, that the original pandemic is metabolic dysfunction. And and we're going to get into where that comes from in detail, because it's something I get asked about a lot. And I really want to break it down for all of my listeners. Before we move on, I just want to ask you this question and really clarify this, and we'll see how you feel about it. I think we'll feel the same way. You're standing there with your patient. You just put a stent in his artery. And most of my listeners will know that before I went to medical school, I was a physician assistant in cardiology. So I was, I'm very familiar with stenting and all this other kind of stuff. And you know, I worked sure. in cardiology myself for four years before going to medical school. So you're standing there. You're giving this talk that I've given to patients as a physician assistant before I went to medical school as well. He gets serves a burger and fries. What about that plate of burger and fries is the worst part? Is it all oh, bad?
1: You tell me what you
0: think. I don't want to put words it's in your a mouth.
1: But... Carbs. It's the it's it's burger bun and it's the fries. It's almost definitely not the, uh, the, the actual meat. Absolutely not.
0: I think so too. I think so too. And, you know, just for the listener, we did not rehearse this. I just wanted to ask you, you know, in the moment and get your 100%. opinion. But that, I think, is such a uh, sort of a, a, the epitome of the confusion mm-hmm. with with um, epidemiology and with food policy and with mainstream ideas around food. Because somebody's going to say, that guy got served a burger and fries. That hamburger is killing him. When in fact, the meat on that that hamburger bun probably isn't the best meat in the world. It's not regenerative. It's not organic. But that's probably the least harmful thing on that plate of food. It's the refined flour, the wheat in the bun. Probably there's added sugar to the bun. There's vegetable oils in the bun. There's these processed carbohydrates in the French fries, which are dipped in deep fried canola oil or corn oil. So that I think is such a crystallizing moment. When we look at that plate of burger and fries and we say, is 100% of that bad for that patient? Or is maybe, do we have, have we had it all wrong for the last 40 years in cardiology and medicine by demonizing the burger when it's the bread and the french fries that are contributing to the progression of his atherosclerotic disease. I just think that's a very interesting perspective to have. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so let's move into the coronavirus conversation. And this isn't really gonna be a different conversation. This is the exact same conversation. And like I said, you've been talking about this stuff forever and I am so appreciative of all the work you've done to bring this to the forefront. What is your take on where we are with coronavirus? And you've been in the media a lot recently as well, noting some really profoundly striking differences between people with metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance, and their risk of severe coronavirus versus those who are not. So let's just continue this natural yeah, sort of sure. segue.
1: Absolutely. So I think first of all, Paul, let's just, uh, just try and put it in con- context. And I'd written about this in a, in a piece in European Scientist a few weeks ago is that the uh, you know with all the debate going on obviously the data has been evolving we get more and more information uh what's interesting is that uh, there has been initially some comparisons with the flu so the flu the infection mortality rate for the flu is about 0.1 percent 0.1 or one in a thousand and the best evidence now suggests that coronavirus certainly is a lot worse um, but probably in the anything between 0.5 and 0.7 percent is is what the data is telling us Uh, And in particular, though, what what is uh, most important is it seems to uh, affect those people who are suffering from excess body fat issues. So obesity, absolutely. But more important than obesity, as you said, is a metabolic syndrome. So, you know, people, you know, in the news that we're talking about comorbidities, you and I know what that means. That means blood pressure. That means type 2 diabetes. That means heart disease. That means cancer. You know, so those are the and of course, age is a massive risk factor. But you don't have to, as you know, you don't have to age with these chronic diseases. They're certainly preventable and to some many, you know, to a significant degree, reversible. What I found looking at that data, and it was actually published in Nature, there was a very interesting article, um, and they'd reference CDC reports, Centers uh, of disease control, saying that people with metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes may have a tenfold increased risk of mortality. And, you know, the data's varying, but it's significantly up there. You know, if not if not exactly there, it's significantly up there. One thing it definitely is, is certainly hospitalization is, is uh, at least 10 to 15 fold with, with people who have three or more risk factors. So I think the, that's one thing I noted. Then I suddenly thought, well, hold on. These are all conditions of the metabolic syndrome. And we know that we can affect metabolic syndrome very quickly. So actually, isn't this the right time to be telling people, the public, government advice should be, you know, it, this is a really, the, the most important time. In fact, no, there's no better time for you to change your diet than now. And uh, really, that's how I concluded the piece. I think the other thing to mention is that, uh, to give it context, and ver- there's a very good paper I referenced from the United States, uh, even I was quite shocked when I read this for the first time, that only one in eight Americans, 12.2% to be exact, of American adults are metabolically healthy. And before people say this is about older age, well, actually, only one in four aged between 20 and 40 are metabolically healthy. So three quarters of people between, you know, 20 and 40 adults in the United States are not metabolically healthy. And overall, it's a seven and eight are not. So that's pretty extraordinary. And uh, really, you know, we have been, the healthcare systems were already under strain, as you said, the pandemic, the real pandemic is one of metabolic disease. And uh, COVID-19 is exploiting that, you know, this pandemic we haven't dealt with for many, many years, is now being exploited by COVID-19. So actually, this is the time to have that conversation about diet and get people to change their diet now. And as you know, Paul, with your patients, with my patients, you know, a lot of people can even put their type two diabetes into remission within a few weeks of just cutting out the starch and sugar and the ultra processed foods. So so that was really the argument I was making in, um, in, this, uh, in this piece. One thing I would add as well, um, a lot of attention has been drawn to people, we use the word BAME over here, black and ethnic minority groups um, who have been disproportionately affected. And as somebody who comes as, you know, I'm a British Indian, I'm of South Asian origin, um, I'm very aware that the prevalence of metabolic syndrome is probably threefold higher than people who are Caucasian. So we've got this condition that's affecting everybody, but it's now disproportionately affecting people from, you know, from African-American communities, from South Asian communities because of those conditions that are more prevalent. Now, some of it, of course, is going to be related to social issues, but ultimately the same sort of inputs uh, are leading to metabolic disease, which is poor diet and sedentary lifestyle and stress and all that kind of stuff. So that is something that, again, wasn't being highlighted enough, and they were kind of saying, oh, it's very complex, there's cultural issues, and we're trying to figure it out. But actually, no, it's, it, it does come back to the same thing, which is, you know, in terms of the web of causation, the most important thing you can do is change diet. And, and one thing I was thinking about before our, um, uh, our podcast today, which I was reflecting on, When people have these debates and discussions about is it about exercise is it about diet you and i know there is i am yet to see any evidence that just changing diet or improving your sleep and doing nothing else for four weeks is going to reverse metabolic syndrome sorry it's going to reverse metabolic syndrome so so just changing your exercise Mm. and improving sleep Mm. diet is the only thing that can do it it's the only thing that can do it and therefore just adds to that argument that that is the most important factor.
0: I would have to agree with you. And that's such a very important point. I don't even know why we get into these debates. Like, is it exercise that's most important or is it food that's most important? But I think that that comes up a lot. And people want to say, is it more important that I go for a walk or lift weights or exercise, or is it more important that I fix my diet? And people, I think that a lot of people want to know that they can eat junk food or want to hear that they can eat junk food and exercise and be okay. And that is a sinister message in my opinion. And I believe you would agree with that. That is not the right message. And I will actually yeah. read a comment that was posted on another article that you that you had um, recently that you sent to me. So right before the podcast, you sent me a link to an article that you'd written somewhere and um th- one of the comments was this this is from um LBC which is uh leading britain's yeah it's
1: leading british conversation it's a radio uh, they interviewed me on the radio station yeah and they right. did
0: And so the um i can try and link to this in the show notes um and the the title of the article you know that they published was um quitting junk food will reduce risk of dying from coronavirus says cardiologist and not a totally radical thing to suggest. Quitting junk food would reduce your risk of dying from coronavirus. And we will present a lot of evidence that that is the case during this podcast. And um, someone actually made this comment. Now, his name is there, John O. Groats. And again, it's amazing because it's presumably someone from Britain. He says, what a complete and utter load of tosh, (laughs) (laughs) which is a, a purely British thing to say. There is no such thing as junk food, only junk diets. Any food consumed in excess can become junk. Just try, just try living on a diet of carrots, for example, and see what happens. And he goes on to say, rather than trashing foods such as donuts, burgers, pizzas, etc., the educated professor, referring to you, should be teaching the importance of a balanced diet where all foods can be included in moderation. Uh, the biggest issue for cardiovascular health during the lockdown is the lack of exercise, which is a far bigger risk than that posed by a donut. And I think you and I would agree, would disagree with Mr. John O. Groats pretty, pretty vehemently.
1: Paul, yeah. well, it's interesting. He literally, what he said was all uh, straight. Um, he may, may, maybe, may, may know this, he may be working for them, he may not, maybe complete coincidence. But what his arguments that he just made are all from the corporate playbook of the food industry. So one of the really good papers that um, I read, another thing that kind of influenced a lot of my thinking, it was written by uh, Professor Kelly Brownell at Duke. Um, and he wrote this amazing paper, which is Open Access, which is big tobacco, um, uh, li- you know, big tobacco lied and killed millions of people. How similar is big food? And he talks about how uh, the tobacco industry, you know, it took about 50 years between the links between smoking and lung cancer were published before there was an effective regulation like. You know, public smoking bans for example banning advertising of cigarettes the association with sport etc doctors advertising them which used to happen which is amazing it took 50 years and the reason for that is because the tobacco industry adopted this dirty tricks playbook of planting doubt that they were harmful denial um confusing the public right confusing the public and even buying the loyalty of scientists and what's interesting this gentleman on twitter who said this there are doctors, unfortunately, who also make this sort of argument. A lot of it is probably ignorance, but um, a lot of it comes just from messaging from the food industry because that's their way of deflecting blame onto the individual and confusing the message that actually these ultra processed foods, which they are heavily marketed and you know, they're going to make you eat more food and they're going to you know contribute significantly to you getting fat and sick. These are not to blame. This is a personal responsibility issue, and that's how they get away with not getting regulated. So, it wouldn't surprise me, you know, that if this person had some connection um, with the food industry, but that—that's the kind of argument they give.
0: It's—it's it's really unbelievable. You sent me this tweet as well. This is a an endocrinologist, Dr. Anna Dover, and here she is, me during COVID, Dr. Asim Malhotra. Bring me donuts, and it's this, you know, this. Video of this person just eating a donut, just mocking you, and clearly the what she's saying. This is an endocrinologist, a a physician that is trained in the hormonal system, and presumably, ostensibly, is an expert in diabetes. Saying it's okay to eat donuts right now, and this is such an important point that cannot be overstated.
1: No, sure. I think to get let's just you know to pay devil's advocate and give her the benefit of the doubt. She may have done it in a you know in a, with a sense of humor perspective, but. See, the problem is, in this issue of, of ultra-processed food, obesity, a lot of people suffering, getting sick, um, you know, would she have done the same thing with a packet of cigarettes? Would she have put up a, you know, a GIF of a doctor smoking? Would she have done that? And the reason this all happened, this Twitter storm happened, is because I actually reacted to a, a National Health Service trust who was um, very proudly declaring that they were happy that Krispy Kreme Donuts had donated 1,500 donuts for free to NHS staff and uh, you know this is again a marketing stunt and a deliberate exploitation by these companies this is not that you know they had to make profit it's the association of those foods with with people in hospital and this is something that they've done for a very long time these sorts of companies. What many people won't know well certainly was before our time in the 30s and 40s there was initial concerns about smoking that were being raised through the science. And uh, what the tobacco industry did in the, in the early 50s is they started using doctors to advertise cigarettes. So this is exactly the same sort of thing. So, you know, one cigarette, you know, one donut is not going to kill you, but neither is a cigarette. But the problem is it's about legitimizing the acceptability of these products by associating them with healthcare professionals. It's a problem. And that's why I took issue with.
0: And I think we need to be very clear that I believe this 100%, and I believe you do as well. You cannot out-exercise a bad diet. We are talking about molecular mechanisms at the level of the mitochondria. We are talking about reactive oxygen species signaling and insulin resistance at a cellular level that will not be changed by going for a run, lifting weights, or anything else. You cannot out-exercise a bad diet, and to legitimize these (laughs) foods is an extremely dangerous slippery slope. And I think that it's really insidious what's happening. I will, I will screen share just so everyone can see. I, I showed this earlier. This is the article you wrote in The European Scientist. It's a fantastic title. Maybe I'll even title the podcast this, COVID-19 and the elephant in the room, right? So this is a great article. Yeah. And as you say, there's plenty of data. There are many references in here. Um, this is really the take home and the, the focus of this podcast, obesity, the real killer behind covid as you can people can see there's a lot of references in here and you highlight this point which is also telling and very sad 50 to 60% of the 1.4 million nhs which is the national health service in the uk are overweight or obese i would very be very curious to know what the rates of obesity are within the us healthcare system among physicians and nurses and one of the most ah, tender, delicate, taboo issues that I ever encountered throughout my training was the idea that perhaps obese physicians are less likely to talk to their patients about dietary change. And how could they? Last week on the podcast, I had my friend Dr. Tro Kalasian on. Dr. Tro used to be 350 pounds. Is a 350-pound doctor who's now down to 190 through a low-carbohydrate diet, really going to be able to look their patient in the eye and tell them that a donut is bad for them, it's not going to happen. So we have, we have just a, an overall idea, a paradigm, which is highly flawed. So I would encourage people to check out this article that you wrote. As you said at the bottom are all of the references here. It's a great article. And then one other paper that I just want to highlight for people, I've talked about this paper multiple times. You mentioned it as well. This is a paper that I talk about in my book, The Carnivore Code. This is the one you were referring to where we get the statistic that one in eight Americans or 12% of Americans are actually metabolically healthy. So this is a fantastic paper. The flip side of that equation is that 88% of Americans can be considered to have some degree of metabolic dysfunction. And I just want to dig into this a little bit, get a little granular here so yeah. that everyone knows what we're talking about, because these are important things to to really define. What do we mean when we say metabolically unhealthy? How does anyone listening to this know if they are metabolically yeah. healthy or not? And this so there is- there are
1: five, yeah, five Right, factors. right. I'll let you
0: do it. Yeah. This is data from NN. Yeah, no, sure.
1: I mean, so you might, the, the conversion figures for cholesterol, we might need to just check on that for me. But um, so for blood pressure- it's um, a blood pressure of less than 120 systolic and less than 80 diastolic. Right. It uh, Having, not being pre-diabetic, so having a HbA1c of less than 5.7%. Mm-hmm. Um, a waist circumference of less than 102 centimeters for a man and 88 centimeters for a woman. I'm not sure what the, you do use inches over there, right?
0: Yeah, the but length. I think we, we can just use, I mean, people here are familiar enough, and in the paper it says centimeters, yeah.
1: Okay, fine, yeah. And uh, and then it's about having a triglycerides of, uh, you know, uh, less than 150, and HDL of greater than 40 or 50, depending for a man or a woman. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's it. Basically, if you have any three of those five, then you have metabolic syndrome, but to be have optimal metabolic health, ideally you want to have none of those factors,
0: none of those factors. So for people listening, we're talking about waist circumference and when you measure waist circumference, a seam, do you do it? You do it at the belt line or do you do it at the, the umbilicus?
1: Uh, I do it actually just above the umbilicus.
0: Right. That's the most accurate place to do it. So you can't yeah. just say what your pants are at your waist. You have to do it above the umbilicus, right? And that yeah. presumably might give us some indication of visceral fat, the intraperitoneal fat. There could be subepithelial fat, which may not be quite as metabolically you know, dysfunctional. But what we're looking for here is people that have intraperitoneal fat in a very easy measure. You just get a tape measure. So 102 for men and 88 centimeters for women. And then the fasting glucose we talked about, easy. You can get that in a comprehensive metabolic panel or a basic metabolic panel. They're defining fasting glucose less than 100 milligrams per deciliter. And as you said, hemoglobin A1c of less than 5.7 I would say those should even be a little lower. Honestly, fasting glucose, you probably want to be below 90 and A1C, you probably want to be below 5.5. On previous podcasts, I've spoken about some of the nuances of A1C and we can get into that a little bit, but people can also look for the future podcasts that I will do regarding uh, continuous glucose monitoring and the notion that um, in some people who are on low-carb diets, I I do think that hemoglobin A1C can be, um, spuriously elevated just due to the physiology. But, um, the other metrics, blood sh- blood pressure, systolic less than 120, diastolic less than 80, triglycerides less than 150, but really should be less than hundred. And then HDL sure. 40, 40 or 50. Now, gosh, if we have any of these- I think to add to
1: that, Paul, as well, is, you know, the, the, if you notice, obviously the two things are missing out of there, which people might be surprised by is BMI right. and LDL, yeah. right? We talk about BMI, you know, obviously it's quite a crude measure. Um, But to give it some perspective for people who are watching and listening is that only one in three, one of the things I mentioned in the article as well, um, only one in three people with a normal BMI are metabolically healthy. So I always say there's no such thing as a healthy weight, only a healthy person. You know, so people shouldn't have the illusion of protection if they've been told that their weight is okay. They still may be significantly metabolically unhealthy.
0: And this goes back to what you were saying with many ethnic minorities. This is an important point that I wanted to highlight as well. People can look for an upcoming podcast that I will release soon with my friend Tommy Wood here in the States. And one of the things we talk about in that podcast is that for different ethnicities, there appears to be a threshold of obesity beyond which we become insulin resistant. Americans appear to be able to become the most fat, the most obese before the mitochondria cellular mechanisms kick in to make us insulin resistant. But many other minorities, Asians, African-Americans, as you suggest, Indians, perhaps mostly even Southern Indians, more than Northern Indians, but you would know that epidemiology better than me, become insulin resistant more quickly, meaning that you don't look as fat before you become insulin resistant, which is the point we're making here, that you could, uh, I've, I've heard podcasts and heard physicians talk about working with ethnic minorities, whether it's Asians or Indians, and they come into the clinic and they're really not that obese but they have r- raging insulin resistance when you look yeah. at these other measures or when you Absolutely. look at uh, fasting insulin or some of these other m- sort of more laboratory measures of insulin sensitivity so being thin is not a is not a um, is not a clear path or not a clear indication that there is sure. absence of insulin resistance we need to look a little more deeply especially in these ethnic minority groups which is why they can be so wildly effective with this. But in America, we can get really fat, which may be a good or a bad thing, who knows, before we become as insulin resistant. So I like what you're yes. saying there. There's no healthy body weight, really. No. It's about much more than that. But just going back to this paper, I'll just finish this for people and they can look this up if they want. Again, this is cited in my book and in your stuff. You know, all these measures, I would add to this as well. I don't know why we don't do more fasting insulin levels. I think if we just checked fasting insulin on people, that would be revealing more often than not. But again, um, the, the conclusion here is that um, only 12.2%, right? Only 12.2% of Americans meet these criteria. So how striking and sad is that? It's just, it's just wild and really crazy. So, you know, if we move on to the next piece of this equation, I think we're agreeing about all this let, let's just share some stuff that's ironic. Have you seen all of the articles published in the, the mainstream news media about junk food sales right now? What are you observing right now about junk food sales? Have you seen what's happening with this?
1: I haven't. I know, I, I, something in the States, I think, have, have gone up, right? Are people uh, in lockdown are they're eating a lot more junk food?
0: They are. So yeah. amidst that entire conversation about... All of the importance of these ultra-processed foods and contributing to this illness. USA Today, Americans are craving comfort foods during coronavirus. Cereal, snacks, baked goods fly off the shelves. Another one. Cheerios maker General Meals forecasts coronavirus boost to profit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Like, oh my goodness. And then this one is perhaps the, the best one from the New York Times. I just need the comfort processed foods make a comeback during the pandemic. Um, yeah. Shoppers move by nostalgia on hunting for larger shelf lives are returning to old standbys like chef Boyardee and Campbell's soup. So uh, this is the biggest disconnect that I've ever seen. Um,
1: yeah. I think it's foods, just, I mean, the yeah. disconnect as you say, that I think before there's not been any real mainstream discussion. The diet is so crucial to this issue. Um, people obviously don't know um, that you can reverse metabolic syndrome very quickly. So some of the people who that obesity is an issue, but this is not the time to discuss it. Um, that, unfortunately, is, uh, in my view, not, not the right advice that they should be giving. So that's probably why that disconnect is, is there, Paul. People, Some A lot of people still think this is a very long-term type of, you know, it takes many months and years to really get your weight down, et cetera, but it doesn't. And it's certainly, even if it it takes a bit longer to get the weight down, certainly the markers of metabolic syndrome improve quickly. So yeah, I think that's unfortunate. And of course, we understand why the the stress response going on right now, everyone's, you know, a lot of people are very frightened by this whole coronavirus. And you know what happens when you're stressed, you're more likely to eat these sorts of foods.
0: So this is a little bit of a segue, but I don't know, I don't watch much TV in the US, but one of the things that I've been seeing on the media is there's, like we said, there's been no discussion of this connection between metabolic syndrome and, and the illness. And I heard you talk about this with Ivor Cummins, and I think this is such an important point to highlight to people. One of the biggest questions I've got as I've been talking about this is, okay, I get it. Changing my diet, improving my diet, and I, in this podcast, I want to get to how you think we can do that and what that looks like. will improve my metabolic health. How fast does that happen? And you cited this paper that i 've got pulled up that we 're going to look at in a second that shows um, that in obese children, replacing sugar in their diet with starchy carbohydrates, meaning real food, um, resulted in improvements across the board in insulin function insulin sensitivity within nine days. Do you want to talk about this a little bit? How yeah, fast cool. How exactly. fast can we reverse metabolic syndrome? This is the key. Well,
1: I mean within days you can in certain people absolutely uh, you know that paper was done by um, that research was done with a friend of mine called Robert Professor Robert Lustig, as you know and uh, the the blood pressure improved, the waist circumference dropped, uh, as you said, insulin sensitivity improved. so you know it, that's it's fascinating of course you know it's a it's a select group of people with obese you know obesity and and have those metabolic abnormalities, but you know those people are the are the benefit the most and also have the the quickest reaction um, as you can see there that the, and, and they kept the, I think the point was being made in this paper the calories were kept the same, so the carbohydrates were the same, but it was, it was fructose specifically getting rid of the the fruit juice and the sodas that had the big impact um, so uh, I think that's pretty interesting that you know it's another it's another nail in the coffin to the the calorie hypothesis. all calories are not the same you know they' all they're all metabol they're all treated differently, so uh, I think that that's a crucial point
0: it's a crucial point that. Um, So I just screen shared, I'll screen share the article one more time in detail to to show. So the title of the article is Effects of Dietary Fructose Restriction on Liver Fat, De Novo Lipogenesis, and Insulin Kinetics in Children with Obesity. Um, Robert Lustig, I believe, is one of the authors on this paper. And as you said, it was only a nine-day study. They had all the meals provided. They had the same energy and macronutrient composition of their standard diet, meaning they did not even go low-carb. They, all they did was substitute starch for sugar, yielding a final fructose content of 4% of total kcals. And they may say in the paper what the, the prior fructose, uh, fructose content was, but they didn't change the macros, meaning they didn't change the ratios of carbohydrates, fat, and protein. They didn't change the calories. It was isocaloric. All they did was take out sugar and sugary drinks, And the results are striking. Within nine days, it was a nine-day study, liver fat decreased, visceral adipose tissue, that adipose tissue inside the peritoneum that is associated with metabolic dysfunction decreased. A little more complex measure called de novo lipogenesis area under the curve decreased, and the changes were irrespective of baseline liver fat. Their conclusions are striking. Short-term, nine-day isocaloric fructose restriction decreased liver fat, visceral adipose tissue, de novo lipogenesis, and improved insulin kinetics in children with obesity. These findings support efforts to reduce sugar consumption. Do you think so? Like, and yet, you know, we're drinking more sugary drinks now. We're eating more sugar. And I think that if we did the data, we would see people are getting fatter during the quarantine. So this is a really strong paper, or at least a strong answer to the question that a lot of people have been asking me, and I'm sure you, okay, I want to change my diet. How fast can it happen? It can happen in less than two weeks. And to me, the very striking conclusion here is that we've been in quarantine for six weeks. No, I know. We could, I know. Have, we could have reversed metabolic dysfunction, improved all of these measures in millions of people and saved tens and thousands of lives if this had been the mainstream messaging. Don't you agree? No,
1: I know, Paul, you're right. And in fact, actually, I went before I wrote the article um, in a European scientist I, about, about six weeks ago, I went on Sky News related to another article over in the newspaper to make this point before COVID had even hit the UK and the U S that this is a time to do it. You know, we need to be able to get this message out, but you know, it was just picked up by one news outlet and it was one discussion. Um, but yeah, I mean, we just need to keep hammering the message as much as we can to get it out there.
0: And maybe I'll get your, I'll get your sort of, um, thoughts about this, but, um, I, my, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I can't help but think, like we said earlier, that one of the reasons this message is not getting out there is because a lot of agribusiness, a lot of these ultra-processed food manufacturers are the ones making commercials on TV right now, are the ones funding this, that it's alcohol commercials and processed food commercials and pharmaceutical commercials. There's a there's a real conflict of interest here when, and look, I believe in a... I, I believe in a capitalist society. It's a free market society. You know, those businesses are allowed to make money. But when the news media is funded to the tune of millions of dollars by all of these agribusiness companies, Cargo, Nestle, Bayer, Monsanto, and the, and the products they create, where's the incentive for the news, number one, to say, you got to stop eating ultra processed food it's much easier for them to say, eat it in moderation or a little bit is fine. One donut a day is okay. You can still eat your donut. Just don't eat too much and exercise more. Eat less, move more, right? It's such a, such a slippery slope. Yeah. It's, it's, really, it's really saddening to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, I think it just underlines, it's a system failure, Paul, isn't it really? Yeah. Um, and I believe in capitalism too, but I'm also, I believe in democracy. I believe in what it is really all about is informed consent. So people are being given misinformation Um, and misleading information because of advertising. And, uh, you know, we have to argue that case that this is not actually democratic. This is actually, as as far as I'm concerned, I said this in a talk in LA at a metabolic health summit I gave in January. I said that, you know, the real battle in healthcare is one of truth versus money. Um, And the way that the big, the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry behave, they are true enemies of democracy and they need to be called out for that.
0: That's so well said. That's so well said. The other piece of the equation that I can't help but notice is that it's going to get a lot more eyeballs on the TV. It's way more sexy for them to say, young people are dying from coronavirus. That's very fear-inducing. That glues eyeballs to the screen. And the other recent insidious misleading uh, piece of the news media reporting was that, wait a minute, we might not even get immunity to coronavirus It's all fear-based. And of course, none of it is really true. And I can share some data regarding immunity to coronavirus and how the reports coming out of South Korea are now known to be just false positives on the RT-PCR testing rather than a reinfection with the virus. But the media, to me, seems to love to have these fear-based messages. They want to tell you, number one, young people are dying. That means, and that subtle message is, you could die from this. But what they're not telling you is that twenty, to, you know, within 20 to 40-year-olds, and you said this on another podcast, a huge proportion of 20, 40-year-olds are obese and have insulin resistance. So when they say young people are dying, it says nothing about the metabolic health of that age demographic. But they want yeah. people to be fearful because that makes them pay attention to the TV. They are fearful and we're stuck and we're paying attention. And the other piece of it is, of course, that the next thing they're saying is hey, maybe you don't even get immunity to coronavirus. Wow, this could be the worst thing ever. You're paying attention again to the TV. So that's really been my frustration, and I don't know why I should be frustrated. This is the way that mainstream media works. Their job, their purpose, their intention is to just get eyeballs on the screen however they can do it, whether it's Stormy Daniels or coronavirus, you know, fear-mongering. Have you noticed the same thing in the UK? Um, I don't think as much, probably.
1: Uh, you know, I think that there is that whole clickbait culture. I think we're probably a little bit more restrained than you, are guys, you guys in the US are in terms of our media. And I think certainly, although there is issues around advertising, and i myself been a victim of being, you know, having stuff edited when I was, work, or when I did a pro, you know, I did a, I was on a show for, um, a channel that had advertising from junk food companies. Uh, in, really? in general, in general it isn't as much of an influence. But yeah, a lot of the media, unfortunately, Paul is. it has a lot of influence from, from big business. But I think what um, you know, COVID-19 has, has shown is that unless you've got a healthy population, then you know, an an unhealthy population is an economically unproductive one. So everybody loses. And of course the whole lockdown issue has dramatically affected the economy. And uh, I think people need to wake up and realize those people within those companies and think about, hold on a minute, this is affecting, we're all affected by this, you know, uh, our friends, our family, we have a moral duty and responsibility. We want to get people healthier. We're all interconnected. We, can't, we don't survive on our own. We, we all rely on each other. And therefore, it's in our own interests to make sure that everybody is healthy. And I think once people get that, get that at the very top, then things will change.
0: I do think that you're so right, that it's it's information versus money. And I don't know how to change it. Um, I don't know how to change it. But one of the things that we do know... We, we keep
1: making noise, Paul. That's what we keep doing. It'll change. So. It'll take time. It.
0: <laughs> Disruptive. I, I, think, I think you're right. I think it's going to come from the bottom up, not the top down, as my friend Ken Barry likes to say. It's going to be essentially akin to a rebellion of the people, but my goodness, I think from the top down, we're going to keep getting the messaging that, that it's okay to eat a donut every once in a while without any real appreciation for the, 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 the potentially negative metabolic effects of that. Yeah. And that's, that's, very, that's very nuanced. And again, I like what you said there. There's, um, there's a lot of mixed messaging and they're trying to confuse people. So this is the article that I am referring to in the Korea Herald. It's um, from April 29th. It's just a few days old. This is referring to the tests in recovered patients. Yeah. Saying that they found false positives, not reinfections, not reinfections. But again, I really want to try and be a voice for my listeners and the community to say, "Hey, like, watch out for the media." It's really appears to me to be trying to just get your eyeballs connected with this um, for for fear. And this is the the takeaway: the PCR tests, so the polymerase chain reaction tests, the RT PCR tests done in the posterior pharynx cannot distinguish whether the virus is dead or alive, which makes sense because you're just looking at RNA. So you, and that can lead to false positives, which means that the test is positive, but somebody doesn't actually have a true infection with coronavirus going on. And that is, yeah. to me, very, very misleading. So, and then I just want to see this, maybe that screen share didn't work. Let me try one more time. Um, there you go. So this is a really great paper. Did you see this one? um in patients with uh
1: the yes g- i did see
0: that yeah yeah, yeah absolutely
1: really striking and Paul, actually that's something we've known about in medicine for a while anyway you know right. glucose control, even with mi's heart attacks going back when i was a junior doctor was we you know those patients that had high glucose were put on insulin infusions immediately because data suggested they had better outcomes so you know that's one thing i wrote about when i wrote this article i was like hold on a minute this is something that it's almost, it's the basics of medicine we know that poor glucose control is a risk factor for adverse outcomes for many things, but infection is one of them. So it's not surprising. It's interesting. I'm glad they've done that study, but it's not surprising.
0: And this is published in Cell Metabolism. I mean, all of the cell journals are about as prestigious as you get. The the takeaway is in type 2 diabetes, type 2 diabetes correlates with a worse outcome for COVID-19. The authors, Zhu et al, show that among 7,300 cases of COVID-19, type 2 diabetes is associated with a higher death rate. Um, but diabetics with better controlled blood glucose die at a lower rate than diabetics with poorly controlled blood glucose. So what they're talking about here is variations in glucose control. Uh, this gets back to the what'll be a really interesting future conversation about continuous glucose monitors that I'll have on this podcast and how you can tell how well controlled your blood glucose variability is. This is really the problem with blood glucose is it's hard to get an idea of how the blood glucose is varying minute to minute, but that's really a very, a very valuable indicator for the overall metabolic health. Is it's not so much yes. where's, where's the blood glucose, it's how much is it going up and down. When you put a continuous glucose monitor on someone, you can see that, but that blood glucose variability, again, is, just, is, is a real proxy for this insulin resistance, which we know affects um, immune status. So uh, I, I don't know how anyone could ignore this, and then I don't know how in the midst of that we can have memes with people eating huge donuts, which are sure to make your blood glucose go all over the place. It's crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely, absolutely. I think yeah, we, we need to keep just pushing that science and educate our, our colleagues as well, Paul. Because you know uh, a lot of our colleagues, di- diabetes specialists, have got, have have been um, you know they've been indoctrinated by the calorie hypothesis. Not that a cal- not just a calories a calorie, but there is this unfortunate um, mindset. Uh, Which is also to to, yeah the the obesity is the cause. So obesity is the cause of type two diabetes, and therefore it's just about keeping a healthy weight. You know they're not that's that's another big problem, Um, and therefore it doesn't matter where your calories come from, as long as you keep them down. And that's why people like you know these diabetes or endocrinologists genuinely actually probably believes that in the in the calorie hypothesis, and therefore doesn't think donuts are an issue.
0: Yeah. So let's dive into that a little bit. And that will probably bring us to the real, the real takeaways of this podcast for people. How do we get insulin resistant and how do we correct it? And there are, I think there are many ways to do this or there are, yeah. there are more, there's more than one way to uh, achieve insulin resistance and there's more than one way to fix it. But let's talk about both of our perspectives on, why don't you just start with, and we've kind of talked about this, but let's just drive the point home. In your opinion, how do people become insulin resistant? Why is it such a big deal? And then how do we get out of that?
1: Yeah, I think there are four factors. I think the diet is probably the most important. Um, right. A diet that is high in ultra processed foods and refined carbohydrates. Uh, I think that if people were eating more whole foods that were keeping them that were nutritious and certainly had cut out the sugar, then the chances are they won't develop any degree of significant insulin resistance. So i think that's a the the general population issue has been around that about the fact that ultra processed foods is now more than 50 percent of what we consume certainly in the uk which is pretty extraordinary i'm sure it's similar in the united states so basically anything that comes out of a packet that has five or more ingredients usually with preservatives or additives um, and is high in you know often high in sugar and starch and unhealthy oils and devoid of nutrients you know even modern bread packaged bread paul i mean certainly i've seen in the UK, but certainly in the US, I've spent a lot of time there. People picking up bread from the, you know, look at the ingredient list next time you go into the grocery store. And if it has five or more ingredients, just don't buy it, you know, don't buy it. So uh, the ultra processed food, I think is a big issue from a diet perspective. Of course, I think exercise is important, but the most important thing is to not be sedentary for long periods. So don't sit for more than 45 minutes. You know, the terms of the data on longevity and the blue zones, et cetera, there are no gyms in these places. Listen, I'm obsessed with the gym. I do it because I feel good and I feel great mentally and it's good for strength and that kind of thing. But when it comes to longevity, the simple thing from exercise is just doing brisk form of exercise, whether it's walking or cycling or whatever for 30 minutes a day is the best thing you can probably do. Uh, or you know, it's certainly enough. Um, poor sleep, not getting enough sleep, not getting at least seven to eight hours of sleep. You know, that certainly impacts on insulin resistance. And related to that is stress, Paul, as well. I think that's another big issue. And of course, all of these things combine. If you're stressed, you're more likely to eat bad food, you're more likely to get poor sleep, etc. So all of this becomes a vicious cycle. So those are kind of the four things I would identify um, as being factors. Other things that haven't been measured but certainly make sense, and I think is also you know the, the stuff around um, you know mental health, also related to stress, is about you know social connection you know, relationships, meaningful relationships, all these things are really important in reducing stress and probably have some impact on health as well.
0: I agree with you completely. And I want to dive into, I just really want to clarify for people. I like what you said, there: ultra processed food, five or more ingredients. Ideally, it would be no processed food. There's no label because you're not buying anything in a package, but It's simple. It doesn't have to be a carnivore diet, even though people that listen to this podcast will know that I'm an advocate for a nose-to-tail animal-based diet or a carnivore-ish diet. It doesn't even have to be that way. As the study from Robert Lustig shows with those obese children, you can keep calories the same. You can keep macronutrient ratios the same. You don't even have to eliminate carbohydrates. I think that elimination of carbohydrates for people, low-carb diets can be an effective way to improve insulin resistance, but you don't have to do that. No. It may sure. be as simple as removing sugar sugar sweetened beverages and vegetable oils from the diet, which is the majority of the place we're Absolutely. getting is these ultra processed foods. And I love that Absolutely. you like, I mean, of course, exercise, get out, move around. And then, you know, surely you've seen this data that's coming out now with vitamin D. I mean, sure. hopefully exercise outside, you know, vitamin D insufficiency is prevalent in severe COVID-19 this is a striking paper, it's a small study, but um, they defined vitamin D insufficiency as I think less than 30 nanograms per ml. And they found that um, there were much higher rates of severe coronavirus in patients with, with low levels of vitamin D. And there's, you know there's more papers like this coming out now. And again, to my dismay, I haven't heard many of them reported in the media. <laughs> evidence that vitamin D supplementation could reduce the risk of influenza and COVID-19 infections and deaths. I don't know why this is not headline news. Um, probably because yeah. we're in the middle of a lockdown, which has variable efficacy, but, um, and, and telling people There's that a lot more emphasis,
1: unfortunately, in the news getting around these drugs, which have not got any proven evidence so far and probably not going to be very effective, I, I fear.
0: Yes, place. I agree with you completely. That everybody wants to talk about hydroxychloroquine, they want to talk about remdesivir, and they want to talk about a vaccine, a vaccine, especially if you're Bill Gates. But you know, it's just I think that there might be mass riots in the street if the media came out and said, "Oh, by the way, vitamin D is super important to being healthy from coronavirus," and people might realize, "Wait a minute, you've told us to shelter inside for the last six weeks." is there a little bit of a conflict here? That's crazy. Yeah, and again, sure. we can get into and people will know that I've publicly um, debated uh, and, and been questioning the actual um, numbers and epidemiologic utility of lockdowns. That's probably a subject for another podcast. Um, there's a guy walking into my apartment building right now with a pizza, not for me, but someone else. <laughs> I'm, I'm judging him a little bit, thinking, you need to be hearing this podcast right now, my friend. And, um, but the other piece that I found quite interesting about this vitamin D issue is that, um, that we know there's an association between lower vitamin D levels and insulin resistance, which to me makes it all quite simple. And I'm not sure, I don't think we know why this is. Most of these are association studies,
1: of course, as well, right, Paul,
0: chicken or the egg. egg? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. What were you going to say about that?
1: No, in terms of it could be there's some other mechanism that's reducing vitamin D in people with insulin resistance rather than just being coincidental that it's a dietary issue.
0: It could be, um, right.
1: So that could be the reason. I mean, I suppose the only thing we don't know, but again, I, I would advocate for it as it not doing, as, as you know, as a doctor, if, if there's something you're not certain about, but it's not going to do any harm and may do some good, then why, why not recommend it? And I think vitamin D isn't going to do harm and it may do significant good for people. Certainly this time so absolutely I, I'm certainly an advocate for people taking supplementation vitamin I'm not normally an advocate for supplements generally because you can get it from real food but right now at this time it's not going to do any harm and I think the same thing goes for vitamin C um, you know taking high doses of vitamin C are generally pretty safe and uh, there is some suggestion that it could be protective as well so I think those are the only two things I would, I, I would advocate for in terms of supplementation but the most important thing is eating, eating real food and he's saying getting enough sunlight, you know, getting the vitamin D ideally from the sunlight.
0: Yes, I would, I would say um, from my perspective and from yours, get it from the sunlight, which means you're going to be outside, you're going to be breathing fresh air. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the way to do it because we really don't know. I, w- I was really interested in this vitamin D supplementation and insulin resistance. And the data is all over the place, but I definitely found some studies that had negative results, which I was saddened by, but I suppose it's the data, yeah. you know. So they, ha- they no, have exactly. done s- supplementation studies with vitamin D, on oral glucose tolerance in levels with low vitamin D status uh, at increased risk for developing diabetes, and they generally fail. They don't necessarily show an improvement in in glucose tolerance in the interventional studies. So, um, you know, I don't think that reasonable doses of vitamin D orally are going to be harmful to people necessarily, but I fear that we should not use them as a substitute for real sunlight, being in the real light and doing the real thing. 100%. Yeah. So that's, that's just so important. Now. Um, I'm curious about this. We kind of touched on this earlier and I, I think that I, I know your opinion on this. How, if you had somebody that had uh, insulin resistance, what do you think? And this would probably depend on the person. What would be the best way for them to improve that? Rem, rem, eliminate ultra processed foods easy. Right now. I just want to be clear. Um, do you think they should be low carb should they just eliminate the sugars like what do you think the best strategy for that would yeah. be
1: so, so 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 um so Paul I I I in terms of the evidence that's available to us at the moment of course you know nutritional science has got loads of issues and problems uh, the only uh, randomized control trials that have really improved heart outcomes specifically reduced death rates uh, for heart attack um, and and stroke two different trials are trials that use the mediterranean diet
0: Mm
1: -hmm. my analysis and looking at heart disease is you know there are two there are twins kind of 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 the sort of the abnormalities in terms of what's going to increase your risk of heart attack and it applies to many of these other chronic diseases as well is insulin resistance and chronic inflammation so my interpretation of the evidence is that we have the leon heart study which was a a randomized trial done in you know a small trial on people with, with with heart attacks but you know, the, um, the effect was pretty dramatic. I mean, almost three times more effective in reducing death rates than statins. Exactly. Than heart disease. Of course, it's one trial. So people will say it needs to be replicated, et cetera. And I agree with all of that. And then you have the PREDIMED study, which looked at people at high risk of developing heart disease, type 2 diabetics, and middle age, and followed them up for four or five years. And basically, they showed that there was a, a reduction in not in all-cause mortality, but the significant reduction in, in stroke and NNT of 61. Um, and again, that was an olive oil based Mediterranean diet. So cutting through all of it, my, uh, my, the diet that I recommend uh, to my patients, um, especially with insulin resistance, is one that is low in refined carbs and sugar, but has the components of the Mediterranean diet that, in my view, are the likely beneficial components. So this is good quality extra virgin olive oil. This is oily fish. This is a variety of low sugar fruits and lots of vegetables. Um, you know, this is uh, and and not to worry about the full fat dairy, not to worry about meat, and to really cut out the starch and sugar. And for my patients, certainly that has a dramatic effect in all those markers of metabolic syndrome. And until better data becomes available that suggests that this is not, you know, the right way or right approach or is a better approach, that's the one I would recommend for my patients. But listen, mm-hmm. I've spoken to Sean Baker about this, and I think that um, I think the carnivore diet. I'm hearing a lot of good things anecdotally for uh, for patients who have gone on carnivore. Uh, and again, if it's something that's going to improve your metabolic health and you're getting all your nutrition, then I don't see there's an issue with it. But personally, in terms of the evidence that we have, uh, in terms of both improving risk factors and hard outcomes, I think that, uh, a low carb, you know, a low refined carb, low sugar Mediterranean diet, uh, in my view is, has the best evidence that we have to date. Of course, we need more studies to test out different dietary approaches. So that's the one I advocate for.
0: And I think that's totally reasonable. Uh, I think that I love that you added the pieces of the Mediterranean diet that, that as best we can tell, are the most effective pieces. Because the Mediterranean diet has been adopted by everyone because we've got these trials that say, "Hey, this type of an intervention improves versus a standard American diet." And everybody wants to say, "Oh, it's this part of the Mediterranean diet that's beneficial," or "It's this part of the Mediterranean diet. It's whole grain bread, or it's the olive oil, or." And I think that we don't really know what part of it it was, but some of the most compelling arguments I've seen are in line with what you suggest, that it's probably, I don't know that it's necessarily the olive oil itself that's helpful, but perhaps the replacement of processed vegetable oils and seed oils with the olive oil, that you're moving from a a high vegetable-based diet, which is what is mostly in our diets right now, these corn, canola, safflower, sunflower oils, People can hear sure. the whole podcast I did with Kate Shanahan about this. The, I think it's pretty clear that the replacement of those vegetable seed oils, which are very highly oxidized, with a much less oxidized oil like a good olive oil, could have massive improvements in our health. And it's it's sure. really important. And I certainly so. Sure, and also,
1: Paul, to I think the, the one thing I mentioned is that the um, you know the, the anti-inflammatory components of some of these foods are probably you know where the benefit is whether it's vegetables or or the omega-3 fatty acids from oily fish or walnuts, you know, these probably, and it could be the synergy too. So it could be that actually it's not the olive oil on its own. It's the olive oil with the oily fish, with the vegetables, all of those together seem to have some benefits. So I think that data, that that science is evolving. Um, But, you know, there is a plausible reason that it could be a synergy of these different foods together that seem to have the best effect on your gut microbiome and on your metabolic health as well.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting thing that's evolving. And I certainly hope that myself and Sean will be able to get some dietary studies on the carnivore diet. It's such a radical idea. Thanks for commenting on that, though. It's good to know that as a a well-respected cardiologist, or perhaps a a controversial (laughs) forward-thinking cardiologist in the UK, you don't think that a carnivore diet is completely crazy, and uh, nor do I, obviously. I wrote a book about it. But and, and my listeners will know that I don't, I'm not dogmatic about a carnivore diet. I'm not dogmatic about low carb. I've personally been experimenting with some carbohydrates in my diet recently and looking at my continuous glucose monitor, which has been a very fascinating thing uh, that I'll talk about soon. And I think that ultimately with any diet, we're, we have reasonable lab metrics to tell how the diet is affecting you now. You can look at all of those metrics of insulin sensitivity that we talked about earlier, oh, I'm eating a Mediterranean diet, or I'm eating a carnivore diet, or I'm eating a whole foods diet. My waist circumference is going down. My blood pressure is going down. My triglycerides are going down. My HDL is going up. My fasting glucose is low. And then you can go further and say my HSCRP is low and my fasting insulin is low. And I think that those are what's so intriguing to me about an animal-based diet, which is so nutrient-rich is, you know, in myself and my clients and more and more, we're beginning to see, hey, the markers don't go in the wrong direction; they go in the right direction. Maybe this helps some people and is the right fit. But I do want people to know that, that we don't have to be dogmatic about carbohydrates. And for a lot of people, it's not carbohydrates that are the issue; it's the processed carbohydrates, the, yeah. the flours, the sugars. Those are the main issues. Um, Absolutely. Incidentally, and in fact, just a statistic yeah,
1: on that point, Just in the American diet, forty-two percent of the calories consumed. Uh, in the American diet, a low quality carbohydrate. So that is, I think the big issue. We need to get that 42% to maybe less than 10%. We're not saying don't have them, these occasional treats or don't have pizza or bread occasionally, but it shouldn't be 42% of your calories. It should be probably less than
0: 10%. And I mean, I'll, I'll go further and say that I think I would say to people don't have those foods, you know, <laughs> like don't have donuts. <laughs> like uh, sometimes you just got to cut it out. And I, I want to draw the hard line for people and say, those are not going to be contributing to yeah. any a bit of health in your life at all. And, and you know, that, that poor guy walking in with the pizza, like, man, you know, that's, you're going in the wrong direction there. And again, this is a free country and people get to do what they want. But, um, I want people to understand that those foods, even in moderation can, can cause the markers to change, uh, temporarily. I mean, we've see this like in almost instantaneously, someone can eat a high sugar meal or a, a meal of these processed carbohydrates. And again, we're drawing a clear distinction between processed carbohydrates and non-processed carbohydrates, but we can see very different changes in flow-mediated dilatation at the level of the endothelium, uh, molecular levels, reactive oxygen species at the level of mitochondria with one single meal. I mean, we know that you can become, quote, insulin resistant within hours of eating a, a meal that's high in vegetable oil and processed carbohydrates. So, it's yeah, it's temporary, sure. and of course, it's what you do over the long term that matters, but um, it, even even one bit of it is, is going to push things in the wrong direction. So it's yeah. it's a challenging thing. Yeah, it's a challenging thing. So uh, what did you have for dinner tonight?
1: Oh, I haven't eaten yet, actually, my oh. friend. I'm just about to go and have dinner now. So, my, my, like, What are my, you going to have I'm for dinner? So he's, he's, cooking, he's cooking some... Uh, um, so I love... I, I'm Indian origin. Uh, I, I've been cooking for 25 years. Uh, I love Indian food. I love home-cooked Indian food. So tonight we're having... Um, uh lentil so we're having some lentils and uh having some i don't know what the 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 the, the vegetable name is it's what it's a very interesting vegetable in india which is one that actually is you it lowers your blood glucose when you eat it hmm. it's called karela in in uh in it, that's the indian term for it so we're having that and some lentils basically some full-fat yogurt and some salad and that's basically it and I, I don't have any starch with with my dinner so
0: um yeah that's do you eat meat or are you, <laughs> are, are you vegetarian do you eat meat sometimes
1: no no i no i i am not vegetarian i'm complete omnivore complete okay. omnivore but but um but for indian food i can i because i love it so i i'm a huge foodie and the food that indian food in my view vegetarian indian food is the best vegetarian food you can eat in terms of the tastiest um so i could very easily survive on vegetarian food for weeks and feel mm-hmm. very happy in myself if it's mm-hmm. indian home cooked
0: Mm-hmm. And we didn't have time to talk on this. I have to get you back on the podcast, but I know you've done so much in your own work and on your website, which I'm going to show in a moment about statins and cholesterol. Where can people find more of your stuff in the future if they want to work with you or if they want to learn more about sure. um, your perspectives on this stuff?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so, Paul, I, um, I'm on Twitter as Dr. Asimulhotra. Facebook, I post a lot of things on my Facebook. This again, my name, Dr. Asimulhotra um, Instagram lifestyle medicine doctor. And then my website does actually, you know, if people want to get in touch with me or they want consultations around things like statins and cholesterol and trying to understand how they can prevent or even manage their heart disease. And, you know, I'm, I'm available for those as well. Those are both UK and international based consultations that I do.
0: And that's dr. and you do it internationally. Absolutely. Great. So here's the website and all that good stuff. If people want to see that. And then. You'd mentioned this article as well, which people can find, um, which is a great, um, thing. And it's my author is my, our mutual friend, James Nicolantonio it is, yeah, and that, is and t-
1: that, that, this paper kind of gives the evidence or argument for the kind of low carb Mediterranean and where the evidence is from and how quickly one can reduce one's risk, um, for risk factors, but also probably death rates and heart attacks within, you know, probably weeks to months of just changing diet.
0: And that's, I think that that's one of the biggest takeaways that I want to share with people on this podcast. This can happen fast. And in the six weeks of quarantine, we could have reversed it all. Absolutely. So the title of this paper is, it is time to stop counting calories and time instead to promote dietary changes that substantially and rapidly reduce cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. I love it. All right. So I didn't warn you about this, but the last question I always ask people on this podcast, it's a left field question. What, what is the most radical thing that you have done recently? And I'm a child of the eighties. So I'm thinking of like, you know, however you want to define radical, but I love the word radical. So what is the most radical thing that you have done recently, my friend?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, probably, um, called out the British prime minister, uh, and suggested that because he's significantly overweight, that's why he got very sick from COVID-19. Um, A lot of people said it needed to be said, and it wasn't there in any way. Obviously, to fat shame—that's not what I'm about. It's actually about to highlight something as a doctor and observation, and how the rest of the cabinet, who were slim, didn't get sick, and probably the weight was a big factor with the prime minister. So that's uh, probably—is that the kind of question you wanted to, or was it more? That's amazing.
0: (laughs) That's the best answer I could have. That's amazing. (laughs) And and so you know, we're here in the U.S. um, You know, we'll just talk about that a little more. His name is. um, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson. And you, you'd even messaged me or someone had said that, uh, I think this had been published in a paper that, or an article that you had, um, you know, talked about even before coronavirus, people were worried about his health. And even though he was cycling to work every day, even though he was exercising every day, he was gaining weight and he was metabolically unhealthy. Now, interestingly, the mainstream news media paradigm or a message was that, Healthy prime minister gets a severe course of coronavirus, and you think the guy's clearly got some obesity, he doesn't look very healthy. Well, in
1: 2018, his BMI was 35. Uh I don't know how much weight he's lost since then, but it doesn't seem to be, he does seem to certainly have the central (laughs) obesity issue. Um, And really, I'm hoping you know, it it got a lot of pickup, and it's all been quite positive. I mean, there's been a bit of trolling on social media. But actually, the mainstream media wanted to hear what I had to say, and I was on Good Morning Britain. I wrote an article which was featured on the front page of the Telegraph newspaper here, and it's been an ongoing discussion since then. Um, and it's all been quite a positive thing in terms of no one in the media has said to me, how can you say this? I think that's one of the advantages that you know, we have. Obviously, we, we treat this sensitively as doctors. Um, But that's our duty, isn't it, um, uh, Paul? That's what we have to do. We have to highlight that. That's our, you know, if somebody has an appearance of looking unhealthy and we are are here to try and help them reduce that risk, then we need to have that conversation. Um, And I think because this is related to the whole discussion we've been having about COVID-19 and those people being affected, you know, that was an observation of mine that this could be uh, a factor that affected Boris Johnson. And then since then, UK data has shown a significantly increased risk of death and certainly, hospitalisation in the UK by being obese. So you know, uh, it does fit with uh, fit with that. Um, but sometimes we, you know, in this space, we have to use anecdotes to com- convey some complex information, and those are the kind of things that people remember.
0: And I think in this case, it's very memorable and a very clear illustration and a very clear contrast and great point to make. And it's not fat shaming. I think you know. If I'm doing something wrong, I want someone to call me out on it. It's not fat shaming. We need to be able to talk about these things, and it's saying, Absolutely. "Hey, like this is not a preventable disease: diabetes, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome." This is, excuse me, I misspoke. This is a completely preventable disease. Yeah. This is not. This is not an unpreventable disease. Uh, this is totally fixable, and it's it's something that shouldn't be uh, lost, a missed. Yeah. And can- I think that's I-
1: what's been good about this conversation in the mainstream media I've had this week is that has been the kind of. Guys, this is a time to change things. We can do this. We can act on it. We obviously need government policies to help people eat healthier as well. We need to get all of that, like we, uh, how we tackle tobacco. We need the same kind of approach with food. But certainly for individuals, as you know, those people can get those messages out there. But let's 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 work on it because uh, another pandemic could happen uh, in the next few years or a similar virus. And Will happen. Healthier population, we can handle
0: it. Will happen. Another pandemic will happen. I mean, we're already in the middle of the obesity pandemic and there will be more viruses. You know, I mean, we can debate all day about where this virus came from. There's new reports in Newsweek that perhaps it's actually from a lab, who knows, but it, you know, that has all sorts of political ramifications, but, you know, there will be more of this. This will not be the last one. And with with previous flus, with all infections, we know that this is the key factor. And and as we've talked about, we know this is not rocket science. To reverse it, it's just a matter Uh of... And in terms, of, in
1: terms of this message, Paul, what we need to do, uh, you know, we, we are here as, as advocates to try and get the truth out there and to help people. And one of the things what I'd like to finish on is a, a, a really, um, a really nice quote that I saw when I was in L.A. at the end of January speaking in a, at a conference there. Uh, I was walking down a street and I saw a quote from, um, you know, the, the gay rights activist Harvey Milk. And it was rights are only won by those who make their voices heard hope is never silent. So we need to keep hoping and we need to give people hope that they can get their metabolic syndrome reversed quickly. They can change their diet. They can feel better and healthier and hopefully have long, healthy, happy lives.
0: I love it. That's such a good point to end on. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Paul. All right, you guys, thank you for listening to that one. Thank you to Asim for coming on. Thank you to Asim for all of his work in Britain, you know, just bringing up this critical narrative Um, challenging Boris Johnson on this, not in a fat-shaming way, just saying, hey, look, you probably had a severe course of coronavirus. This is the prime minister because you're obese and you have metabolic syndrome. And guess what? We can fix it. It could be a carnivore diet. It could be carnivore-ish diet. It could be paleo. Find what works for you. Find your truth. I just want to offer you guys what I have found to be the most efficacious thing for me and my tribe, uh, you don't have to follow it dogmatically, and I think that we're all still learning. But check out my book, The Carnivore Code, thecarnivorecodebook.com. And please leave me a review for the book on Amazon. Leave me a review for this podcast on iTunes. Please check out my sponsors, BlueBlocks, Blocks, blueblocks.com, ancestralsupplements.com, and whiteoakpastures.com. I'm singing them today. I'm singing them. Having a good day in San Diego, you guys. Just so you know, these coronavirus podcasts are getting recorded in real time. It is Sunday. This is less than 48 hours until this podcast will be released. I'm sitting in my house or my apartment in San Diego, soon to be Austin, recording a podcast with a seam on Sunday morning, trying to bring you all the most up-to-date information that I can about coronavirus. I've got a bunch in the uh, storage tank that will be out after coronavirus, but I really want these coronavirus podcasts to be timely timely. And up to date with regard to data. So let me know how I'm doing. Leave me a review if you can. I love you all. Stay radical. And, uh, yeah, I hope to see you all in Austin very soon. Let's go for a swim in the lake. All right, guys, take care. See you next week.